Welcome to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Ann Keller. And I'm Hannah Levy. Our guest today is Dr. Carla Edwards. Dr. Edwards is a psychiatrist whose practice focuses on the treatment of mental illness and psychological struggles in elite and high-performance athletes. She has offices in Guelph and Burlington and uses an online platform to support athletes wherever they are in the world. She was a decorated varsity volleyball player while she completed her undergraduate and master's degrees in chemistry at Mount Allison University. She received her MD from Memorial University in Newfoundland and completed her psychiatry residency at McMaster University. Dr. Edwards is the clinical education coordinator of the Waterloo Regional Campus at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine. She has spent time throughout her career focused on emergency psychiatry and crisis stabilization, outpatient child and adolescent psychiatry, and athletes of all ages. Welcome, Dr. Edwards. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Just a brief roadmap for our conversation today. We've split our interview into three parts. The first is a few questions about yourself and your job. The second is the story of how you landed where you are. And then finally, digging into the nitty gritty details about what you do on a day to day or week to week basis. Sounds good. One of the reasons we wanted to start this podcast is because we wanted to get a feel for what specialties are really like beyond the description on the CARMS website. To that end, can you give us a short elevator pitch or a sales pitch for your job as a psychiatrist? For me, psychiatry is really open-ended in terms of opportunity. I think medicine in general is so underserved in so many areas that we have the ability to be creative in the type of practice that we want to engage our lives in. Of course, there are some that are bound by restrictions, i.e. how creative can you be in the ICU or some other settings in terms of what you can introduce into your setting or, or what else you can do from a professional point of view. But in psychiatry, really, I think that there's no limits to what you can do. And throughout my career in the various settings that I've worked in, the creative ideas that I encountered really allowed me to create a pathway that is fairly unusual for a psychiatrist, but the argument that I would have with myself is why not? There's no reason why we can't do things differently. So I think psychiatry is one of those areas that we do have the ability to be creative and have license to really explore different ways to do what we do. How do you think your personality complements your job? I think it has allowed me to go to places that a lot of people weren't willing to go in developing the psychiatry practice. Again, I, I approach life as why not? instead of why. And if something doesn't exist, I don't use that as a boundary or an obstacle. I say, well, then let's do it and find a way to do it. I think my personality has allowed me at least to carve this path for myself in a different area of psychiatry that a lot of people in the country aren't doing. And it's sort of a pioneer area, which is fun. And, and that type of approach to my practice, I think, comes from who I am as a person and has allowed me to explore different pathways in sport and different schools. And I, I just don't feel held back by anything. And I think that's allowed me to create the career that I have. I think that's a great answer. And very much speaks to your history as an athlete. We'll ask you some more about that in a bit. But to look at the flip side of people's negative perceptions of psychiatry, we looked at a couple of studies and one survey study of U.S. medical students identified negative perceptions of child and adolescent psychiatry, including the perception that child and adolescent psychiatry is emotionally stressful and that there's a lack of family and society support. What are your thoughts on this? 
Throughout training, you hear a lot of negative things about a lot of specialties and subspecialties from people outside of that specialty who have stigma about it or their own preconceived ideas about it. I had my ortho attendings would say, why do you want to do psychiatry? There's no reward in psychiatry. I had some answers to him about that, about what the rewards <laughs> were, which is different than fixing a knee or an elbow, but the rewards are, in my opinion, more profound than that. During training, there was a lot of negativity around reimbursement, for example, you won't get paid in child psychiatry. For the work that you do, you just won't make enough money for it, and psychiatrists are underpaid in general. Child psychiatry was never anything I went in intending to do. I, I think a lot of the things that influenced my path were things I encountered along the way. Psychiatry was never something I went into medical school intending to do. It was the most rewarding thing that I did in my clerkship, and that's what influenced my decision to do it. Child psychiatry and the preceptor I had in child psychiatry in my third year residency I learned more from in my entire years of residency than anyone else. So that influenced me to do child psychiatry as well because I found that it was the most pivotal time in someone's life and a family's stage of development that you really could have an impact versus some other times where adults or later adulthood patterns and illnesses have been in place and some negative consequences could have happened. But in child psychiatry, really, you have an opportunity to get in there early and try to have as much influence as possible to change trajectories. So for me, that was the reward. It sounds like you encountered quite a few stereotypes about psychiatry in your training. Are there other stereotypes of psychiatry or sports psychiatry that you've encountered? And what are your thoughts on those ones? The most common ones that I encounter are people assuming that psychiatrists just write prescriptions, that we don't have the time to talk to people. That comes up in every setting that I've worked in. With athletes, it comes up a little bit more often because most of them don't want to be on medications. And I think people in general don't want to be on medications. And the approach that I take is I'm not going to put you on a medication unless I strongly feel from a clinical point of view that you absolutely need it. And if that's the case, we have a conversation about it and I try to help you understand why. But uh, I don't go into a session automatically thinking that I'm going to write a prescription at the end of it. More commonly than not, I'm writing a prescription for exercise than for a medication. And I think people are very relieved to hear that, surprised and relieved. And I'm hoping to change that perspective of psychiatry one person at a time. I think one of the challenges that we're facing in our government reality is a concern that arose a couple of years ago when the government was introducing the idea of removing the ability of the physician to do psychotherapy and trying to shift that somewhere else. Well, in training, we at MASTER, we have an excellent program in which we learn seven different types of psychotherapy, which I think is more than anyone else in the country. And we, we learned that that was such an important part of the relationship with the patient and the treatment overall. We don't want to be a, a unidimensional prescriber. It's not, not why we go into psychiatry. So that certainly is concerning for all of us in psychiatry if that is still on their agenda at some point down the road and hopefully we will fight that every step of the way because the relationship is more important than the prescription. So that's a stereotype that definitely has to change. Thank you for bringing that up and addressing it. I definitely think that's prevalent, certainly from what I have already heard. And so it is nice to hear the counter argument to that and the perception of somebody who's actually in the field. Moving along, we really want you to tell us the story of how you got to this point in your career. So you mentioned that you came into med school not at all considering psychiatry and your experience changed your mind. So just that whole story of, of how you ended up where you are. I think medicine was always on the agenda for me from high school. My high school yearbook says I was going to go into sport and medicine because 
medicine was something I was interested in, science for sure, and sports has been a part of my life throughout my entire life. So, But that was not anything I went into medicine for. I went to Mount Allison. I was recruited there to play volleyball, had a fantastic experience there. It's a very small school, very academically oriented. I met some of the best friends of my life there. Spent my four years doing my undergraduate degree. And at that time, the rules were, if you wanted to play your five years of eligibility of a sport in university, you had to play it wherever you played your first four. So you couldn't transfer it to another school. So I was accepted into medical school after my undergrad, deferred that a year to finish my volleyball career, but made good use of that time in doing a master's degree. I think a master's is never a bad thing to have. Uh, and then uh, went into medical school and moved to a different province. And at that point, didn't lose my connection with sport. I think it actually grew. Uh, during medical school, I played four or five different sports. I coached two different high school teams. Sport was always a very important part of my life. And I, that's a message that I often try to give to medical students or those going into medical school as well, because a lot of people assume that when you go to medical school, your life has to shut down other than medicine because you're going to be so busy. But I firmly believe that you need balance to, to be healthy. So sport continued for me. And, and then when I got into my residency, continued in the sport world. But then as I did various rotations, I encountered athletes in the medical system that when I would meet them, I'd be able to have conversations with them about their sport, whatever they were doing. And sometimes their sport had something to do with their presenting complaint. But because the MRP or the attending didn't really look at that slant or ask about it or understand the impact of the sport on what was happening in their life, Often the diagnosis was wrong or the management plan was not appropriate or the patient wouldn't engage or the entire reason was missed. So I'll give you a couple of examples just to kind of point it out because it became very clear to me that it was so important for an athlete to have somebody who understood that side of things for them to really be able to get a better full picture. I'll give you an example of um, a young woman who was admitted to a PEDS unit for an eating disorder. She was a wrestler who had cut some weight prior to a tournament, which is a common part of that culture and that sport. She was diagnosed as having an eating disorder. Now, wrestlers can have eating disorders, but she was given the diagnosis of an eating disorder because she cut weight before a tournament. That's part of the culture. She didn't actually have any of the other things that went along with an eating disorder, but it was misinterpreted in the context of missing the whole sport piece. There was another 12-year-old girl who was referred to me for gender identity issues because she kept telling her parents she wanted to be a boy. Well, this girl was a competitive soccer player, and at the age of 12, the gender split into girls soccer and boys soccer as opposed to mixed and boys had a more competitive league. She would express her desire to be a boy so that she could play with the stronger athletes. She didn't actually think she was a boy or identify with the male gender but it was misinterpreted in the messaging. So that just planted seeds in my mind and then I happened to go to a conference child and adolescent psychiatry conference and there was a special working group by the International Society for Sports Psychiatry which piqued my interest because I didn't know it existed. And so I went to this interest group and it was such a cool experience sitting in a group of people who treated athletes for a living and they were psychiatrists. And I thought, wow, this is, this is possible. This can happen. And listening to their stories and some of them started off as, you know, parents who were coaching their kids in sport, but who also happened to be psychiatrists and wanted to learn more about the mental health of athletes. But there were some pioneers in sports psychiatry who were there and it was just so inspiring to hear their stories and to see that they could have a practice in treating athletes. And that then ignited this fire in me that that's what I wanted to do. I think that was in my third year of residency. So then going back to finish my residency, there was really nothing in Canada 
that was happening on that front. I presented my grand rounds in my fifth year about sports psychiatry and it was really the first time that a lot of people in our department heard about it. But then I was recruited to work at Homewood, which is an adult psychiatric hospital in Guelph. And so those plans were put on the shelf for me for later. And it kind of percolated around, looked for opportunities, uh, and then later opportunities arose. So life happens along the way. And I think just being open to what you encounter on your journey, really, if you allow it, presents opportunities to pursue. Now, if you're not open to those opportunities, you can just be on a straight path and those will pass you by. But if you put them aside and have them available to you later, then um, given an opportunity and, and being willing to take the appropriate risks, you can make them happen. So as I then navigated through my career, I spent seven years at Homewood. I had a family which necessitated changing my schedule. I had young children, so I needed a more flexible position. So I found outpatients. Now, I live in the Hamilton region, but work in Guelph because I was recruited to Homewood and then started working with the Waterloo Regional Campus, So, and I've been there ever since, so thus I stay in that region partially. But then I did some outpatients, and then child and adolescent psychiatry came up as an opportunity. I had done my training in that during residency, so I was able to pull that out and use that at that time. Well, at the same time, I started a part-time sports psychiatry practice at McMaster at the Department of Athletics. So that was really the, the step into that field and it grew from there. And by spending those years there, I saw the opportunities, made the connections, started to get in the sports medicine world in a different way than my intention in high school, but as a consultant and meeting people and, and opening up other opportunities. And then by 2016, it was clear that's mostly what I wanted to do. I think that was the biggest career risk for me was leaving the mainstream system almost completely and doing this fairly out of the ordinary practice, at, you know, taking the risk, will there be a market for it? Will I be busy enough? Can I sustain it? But always having the background stuff that I could go back to if I needed to. It has paid off in dividends. It's It's been a profoundly satisfying experience. And I can honestly tell you that every day that I'm at work, I think to myself, I love my job. And it's the first time in anything that I've done in my journey that I can say that with honesty. I love my job. That's always great to hear. I want to take you back to when you were a med student and ask if there were other specialties that you were considering besides psychiatry and how you ultimately made your decision. Yeah, there were several others that I had considered. Initially, oncology was one of the ones foremost on my radar because I had lost a number of relatives to cancer and I wanted to beat it. <laughs> and some of my uh, undergraduate and master's research had been in antioxidants and use in, against cancer and things like that. So I, I was the oncology rep for my class and I did some electives in oncology. And for me, the experience changed in that I think the people that I worked with really changed it. I found that the physicians who were my preceptors to me seemed quite jaded and disconnected from their patients in that they would come in the lounge and joke about their boats and talk about going to their, their cottages on the weekend and then go and deliver bad news and then come back and joke about something else. And it just seemed like they were never really connecting with the empathy that I felt needed to be there. And it was just very disillusioning for me. And I think that just kind of shattered my image of what that profession would be. So steered away from that. I thought about radiology because, you know, I have a science brain and those types of things. And it seemed really interesting to be able to just analyze things and take apart a picture and try to figure out what's going on. So I did some electives with that, but there was just nobody to talk to. I found that talking to people was actually something that I needed to do. So then be merged. So ER was the, the TV show at the time. And 
looked exciting and, you know, George Clooney and all of that. And so then I thought Emerge was where it's going to be. So I did a bunch of electives at Emerge and it was exciting. It was fast. It was really cool. Some very interesting things. But what was missing for me was what happened to the person after they left. I found that that was really important to me too. So not just talking to people, but I needed to know how they did. And I needed more than just that clinical interaction right there, that snapshot at that one point in time, because then I just didn't know what happened to them and that was not so rewarding. So that was kind of all in the, the earlier stages. And then in my template for my clerkship, psychiatry happened to be my first rotation, not because I wanted to do it at all. So our, our, our medical school was four years. We had two months with every clerkship and we had a CTU in psychiatry. And I recall early in that rotation, our preceptor saying, you know, as you go through your clerkship, you will know what you want to do when you find the rotation that when you wake up in the morning, you look forward to going to work. You don't dread it, you feel good about it, and you have energy for it. And and I kept that in my mind, and as I went through all of my rotations, that psychiatry, for some reason, it boggled my mind because it was not even on my radar, was the one thing <laughs> that did that for me. I mean, obstetrics I love too. I love catching babies, but it's not always fun. Uh, but psychiatry was just the stories, the stories and getting to know the people and talking to them and their families and understanding their life stories, being able to see them from the time that you meet them the first time when they're ill, helping them through that and seeing how they do beyond that. It just put all the pieces together for me. And I had no expectation or idea that that was going to happen, but it did. And that's what brought me to psychiatry. I love hearing you talk about it because the passion is just so clear in your voice and I'm very excited to find the thing that makes me talk about it the way you talk about psych. (laughs) So is there anything that you wish you had known before making your decision or any advice you have for students who are currently making the decision of which specialty to choose? No, I don't think there's anything that would have really changed my mind. Psychiatry is one of the least reimbursed specialties, but that's okay. I mean, we're still okay. And I love my job. And I think that's more important than anything else. So from that point of view, no. For any of the students that I teach or encounter along the way, really, the message I try to give them is really pay attention to your opportunities as they come. Look for different pathways. Don't always take the most common pathway. And and through my medical school journey and residency journey, there were always the typical places that people would go for their placements or their rotations. I didn't tend to go to those places. I would listen to the reports about other locations and and I would be if I was interested in a certain learning experience, I would go to other places even if they weren't the road most traveled. And I really enjoyed that other pathway actually <laughs> away from the mainstream. I, I find it was richer and it, it opened doors. I think the key is really opening doors along the way. And because as you go further in your journey, you, do, you won't know when you want to circle back and go through one of those doors. But if you have them open, they're available to you at any time. Also, one of the biggest messages I give is don't be afraid to be creative. Medicine can give you the impression that it needs to be straight-laced and one direction and done in only one way, but it doesn't have to be. I sat in my office at McMaster one time and I thought, why are we sitting? Why do we have to sit? That's when I started to craft my dream of when I have my own place, we're going to walk and I'm going to have a punching bag and I'm going to have treadmills and I'm going to have weights because we know that for people that talk and feel comfortable, 
you don't want to sit in a chair and just talk. You need to be doing something, particularly for kids. So when I did create my own office, I have a punching bag, I have treadmills, I have three weights, I have yoga balls, I have TRXs. We go for walks around the neighborhood because we can. <laughs> and there's no reason not to. When you see your clinical practice guidelines and your algorithms, there's nowhere in that that says you can't walk and do the same thing. So being creative and learning different ways of doing your practice, I think, is super important. And I want every student to keep that in mind. I had never considered how much better of answers I give when I'm walking around doing something. <laughs> Thank you for making that comment. So moving us along to our third and final part, we want you to get into all of the nitty gritties about your day to day and your job. Some people feel that there is no such thing as a typical day or week in their job, but what does typical look like for you before COVID? Typical for me, that's changed actually through my career. And I think it's important as a person goes through their career to develop a comfort level for a confidence in being able to do their practice in a variety of ways. So I started off with an inpatient job at a hospital that was salaried. So I didn't have to worry about the billing and my scheduling. It was all kind of done, which was a nice way to really start your practice, start, start your career with just focusing on doing your work and learning how to do that in a good way. So, so that was very predictable. And then I went to a mixed schedule of outpatient child and adolescent in Guelph and then um, sports factory McMaster. So as I moved through my career, it became a little bit more diverse. And so I would have three days in one place, two days in another. And then after I left the master athletic department about three years ago, I started working somewhere else. I find as I've gone through my career, I've just added more things. And uh, a lot of people look at all the things that I do and say, how do you find the time to do all these different things? But for me and my personality, I just, I need to have something different. And I'm driven by that. And so for a while, I only knew the day of the week based on where I was going. <laughs> so there were some weeks that I would be at the University of Guelph Athletic Department on a Monday, and then in Burlington on Tuesday, my private office in Guelph on Wednesday, back in Burlington on Thursday, and, and somewhere else on Friday. And, but it was kind of fun. I think by this point in my career, I can do that because I've got the foundation. I was able to build the foundation early in my career of knowing the system, knowing how to do things. So I don't have to worry about all that. Now I can just have fun and, and be where I want to be. And if I don't like a place, I don't go there anymore, which is kind of fun. I, I don't have to. I, I've taught myself that I don't need to go places that I don't enjoy. And I think it's really important to work in a place and with people who make you feel good. And, and help you be healthy as opposed to the other way around. So some of the choices I've made in my life is because I've left places that haven't been healthy. So that's why I'm, I'm able to be where I am. So most of the time I spend my time in my pre-COVID, I would be in my private office in Guelph, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, which again, I'm surrounded, it's a playroom. I have fidgets, I have Legos, I have magnets, I have Rubik's cubes, and we all would play with these things. And we have the weights and the punching bag, and, and there was just uh, so many different things that we would use in, in our sessions. That was a lot of fun. And, and it, when I would see patients somewhere else, and then they'd come to see me in my Guelph office, most of them would want to see me in my Guelph office because it was a way more fun place to be, and it was very relaxed. <laughs> and it's just me there, and it's wide open, so it's a lot of fun. Um, and then, But it, within that, whether I was in Guelph or um, in Burlington, um, I would also have uh, about, you know, 20% on screen, so an online presence as well, where I would see athletes wherever, because they're all over the place. We have the luxury in Canada versus the U.S., where we can 
through telemedicine, see patients in other provinces. There are some regulations and exceptions, of course, in various provinces, but for the most part, we can see them wherever they are. So with my roles with Cycling Canada and Swimming Canada, and I see lots of athletes with other national teams, they have hubs in different parts of the country, so BC and Edmonton, and then they travel. So um, I can sit in my office and some mornings, literally, I'm seeing somebody in BC, and then I'm seeing somebody in Ottawa, and then I'm seeing someone in Thunder Bay, someone in London. And it's so fun, though. It's so different because we can talk about so many different things, and everybody has such different experiences. So every day is different for me, and sometimes it's different in terms of location. But uh, I have a really nice mix of people, too. I still have some of the kids that I saw at the CMHA. I've kept them on, some of their families. I still have some psychotherapy patients, adult patients from my time at Homewood back in the mid-2000s. So, so I have lots of different types of pieces in my, in my practice that I think are really fun. And, and every day is different. Some days it seems like, gosh, everybody on my schedule has OCD. Today's OCD day. And then some days are like <laughs> bipolar day. So, and that's not by design, but it makes it kind of fun, you know? And I think the most fun part for me is the people, right? And, and sometimes I look at my schedule and I get really excited because I know these people have such interesting stories and I'm really looking forward to the updates. Uh, and some are a little bit heavier because I have new, a lot of new consults type of things. So every day is certainly different. It's all psychiatry. But it's different. It's different people, different stories, and, and it's all fun. Flashing back to when you worked at Homewood, which I understand is an adult inpatient psychiatric facility, what was day-to-day like there? So that was in, I started there on the crisis stabilization unit. So I had seven beds and short stay, usually between three and five days, uh, acute stabilization. Some would stay for a couple of weeks to start the inpatient programs before being discharged. It's a different kind of hospital. It's a pretty neat place in that the units are there. There's a small part of the hospital that's publicly funded. That's the crisis section, but the rest of it is is privately funded and there would be specialized programs where people would come from around the country to go to and would have to pay to be there type of thing. But they had a greenhouse, they had a weight room, beautiful grounds that you could walk around to patients. They had tennis courts, like a bowling alley, (laughs) so many different (laughs) things that seriously you could take advantage of with the patients. So so throughout my time there, again, looking for opportunities, I created with the recreation therapist active recovery class for our patients because uh, knowing how important exercise is for recovery from mental illness or even just staying healthy for anybody, I wanted that to be a part of our programming. So we created this little research project and these screening tools to use to make sure the they were safe enough to go. And if they could come to the uh, program, we would, would set up circuits. Twice a week, we'd have this class, active recovery class, and we'd track their mood, we'd track their recovery. And so that was fun. So, you know, there was an opportunity to do some creative things there. But, but by and large, it was an inpatient unit. So there'd be the usual admissions and daily check-ins and discharges. And it's an intense setting. You know, a lot of people in crisis uh, situations don't want to be in there. And it wasn't always pleasant, for sure. And there were many, many weeks, you know, by a few years into it that I thought, this isn't why I went into psychiatry. You know, I, I, I didn't go into this to have people swearing at me four o'clock on a Friday afternoon and having to hold them down and, and give them medicine against their will. So, so after a while, it, it wasn't enjoyable. And I, I helped to start the, the emergency psychiatry program at the Guelph General. So it was really great. It was a great opportunity to, to create programs and be creative and do different things. But from a practice point of view, after a while, it just... It wasn't satisfying anymore. And then again, I had children. So being in that setting while you're pregnant as a woman, I, I didn't feel safe all the time. So that was another consideration. At Homewood, what would your hours look like? How, what would call look like? What would your schedule look like? 
Yeah, so we were on salary and we were on contract. So it was 35 hours a week, pretty pretty standard. Of course, as a physician, though, it was re- it was really good practice to learn how to keep it to 35 hours a week because on salary, you're only getting paid for 35 hours a week. So if you work more than that, it's free time for them or you're really minimizing how much you're getting paid for your hours. So I felt that was a nice lesson to, to learn how to try to frame, frame my days and get as much done as I could during the time and then leave and leave it there. So the the days were structured. I had my inpatient beds. I would see their families. We had review boards. There was ECT mixed in there as well. So, you know, had to do that. I started to have some leadership roles after my first year there. So I became the medical coordinator of the Trillium unit. So I had some more meetings and things like that. And then there were always more opportunities to get involved. And um, my tendency is to do that. So outside of the regular, you know, nine to four or whatever my hours were, uh, there was finding times to fit those meetings in there and and try to influence the, the environment. In terms of your current practice, if you were to break it down what Monday looks like, what Tuesday looks like, etc. I think I would find that super helpful. In an outpatient practice, it, it's pretty straightforward. Your day would start at whatever time you want to start at. So I start at nine typically and end it whenever you want to end it. So I typically stop by 3.30. So with having my control of my own schedule, I can decide how long I want my appointments to be, how long I want to follow patients for. Those are super important elements for me that were important for me to be able to have some ownership of at this point in my career. Uh, because working in different places, you kind of, people slot people in for you. They don't always understand what they're coming to see you for and how often they need to see you or how long they need to see you for. So I really, really like that part of the ownership I have right now of my schedule. A couple of years ago, I underwent one of those random peer assessment reviews from the College of Physicians, and I had this assessor come from Ottawa, and she asked me, how long do you follow your patients for before you dis- discharge them? And I said, well, however long I feel I need to see them for. And she couldn't understand how I could do that. I said, well, if I don't think they're ready to be discharged, I keep them. And she was envious because she's most publicly funded places are you keep them for six months or you keep them for a certain number of sessions, then you have to discharge them because you have to keep people flowing through. And I said, no, I can keep them as long as I want. I have some people I've known for 16 years and uh, I have some that I still see biweekly and some I, I see for an hour each time, even though I've known them for years because I really enjoy the psychotherapy that I do with them and some are quick check-ins. So it's really about knowing your patients and, and having the, I think outpatients gives you the ability to be creative and flexible and uh, I really appreciate that. So I can I can block time off in my day for meetings or whatever else I need to do. But in general, I keep my hours very respectable because I have kids and I have sports and that life balance and family balance is super important for me. Thanks for sharing that. Again, focusing on your current practice, what is an aspect of your job that makes you excited to go to work most days? Again, the stories. I consider the folks that I follow, their stories are like books for me. And that helps me remember their story. So some of them are, um, are surprised at some of the details that I just remember about who's in their life and what they've been doing and where they were at different times of their life. And and I tell them, well, when they tell me their story, it's almost like I'm watching a movie or reading a book. And that's how I get to know them. And just, I've always just found it such a privilege for people to, to be invited into a person's life to that degree and to that extent. And so that 
that's why I look forward to it because I, I look forward to hearing their story again and seeing what's changed since the last time I saw them and figuring out what our next move is because some people are, are big puzzles and they stretch my brain and some of them are really hard to sort out what to do with. They're really, really challenging, but I'm really grateful for all of the exposures that I've had in, in my, my career because I think every different place I've worked and everything that I've, every type of patient I've encountered has given me the foundation to be able to solve almost any problem that comes across my path. And if I don't know the answer, I know how to find it or I can figure out people that I can reach out to to help me. So I'm very grateful to my journey for giving me that wealth of experience to help me with that. Is there a specific clinical encounter or experience in your field that really stuck with you as particularly poignant? I will never forget the first time a patient told me that I saved their life. It, every time I think of it, it almost brings tears to my eyes because that is one of the most powerful things that you can hear as a physician. It, it brings to mind a few things for me. It kind of triggers a reflection on that ortho who said, you're not going to have any rewards at the end of your day if you do psychiatry. And I think, yeah, well, I just saved someone's life and they told me that. And sometimes you don't know. They leave your office, you really, you, you think you do the best you can and you sometimes hope for the best but you, you never really know the true extent of what you do for someone until they say something like that. And then you know, like, wow, like I had that impact on that person, like little old me did that. And, and it's just, it's profoundly powerful because I mean, it's, I'm not a heart surgeon and, you know, an intensivist who clearly you're saving someone's life on a daily basis by doing something practical right there. But by whether it's something you say or an intervention or just being with them that extra five minutes or something just can make their lives change like that. And, and, you know, some people have written it in cards and some people have said to me after one encounter, they come back and say, you know, if you hadn't said this in our last session, I was going to go and kill myself. And I go, holy, like that's words are so amazingly powerful for good. If I have the, privilege of being that person for some of these people that's makes it all worthwhile I'll never I'll never forget that first time you know and every time I still see that person and every time I see her, she just says you know you saved my life so many times I go wow I feel like a superhero when things like that happen that's really powerful it speaks a lot to our understanding of mental health versus physical health. I hope that our society continues to shift towards understanding uh, mental health. Yeah, there was a, one of the sport med clinics that I worked in a few years ago. One of my athletes overheard one of the administrators really disparaging mental health and or, or the importance of mental health and just saying that it wasn't very important. And I had treated this athlete for a number of years, and she had been highly suicidal for a couple of years. Like every day that I saw her, I did a suicide meter with her, and she was usually over the top. And she, she needed bilateral hip surgery for torn labrums and such. She was a young woman. And, you know, she said to me towards the, the end of our time together, you know, my hips weren't going to kill me. My depression was going to kill me. And she was another one of those who said, I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for you. And that was really powerful. And I just think, man, I wish I wish more people would hear those stories to really understand the powerful aspect of mental health and how it's under the surface, you can't see it, but man, it'll kill you if you don't pay attention to it. Was there a moment 
like a specific moment in your career where you thought like, aha, this is exactly what I'm meant to be doing? Or has it just been a really general sense of satisfaction over the course of your career? Well, the first aha for me was was during the pre-clerkship when I we were doing our psychiatry uh, modules. And for some reason, and I could not understand it at the time, I got the highest mark in all of my marks in psychiatry. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I don't even want to. I don't even want to do this. How did I get a 97 in psychiatry? It just didn't make sense to me. But that was that might have been the. Aha. It should have been the aha to go. Oh, I, I should do this instead of going. Why? So that I think that is the precursor, Pagrith. Uh, my my experience on the CTU and just yeah. I think with every patient, as I as I would get to know them, and every single one that I would just get to know was more and more the aha. And I think they they all built up to going. Okay. I can't ignore this anymore. This is clearly a calling. This is clearly telling me that I enjoy this way too much. And uh, if I ignore this, it's a problem. So (laughs) it's a great answer. (laughs) So given that clinical exposure is currently limited, what are some things about your job that we won't see on paper when we read about what it's like to be a psychiatrist? I think the, the impression has changed over the years. I think in, you know, years ago, it was the stigma was really about that it was it was a negative thing to be a part of and there was something wrong with every psychiatrist anyway there's a reason why they go into it <laughs> that's something that people still half joke about <laughs> i think though uh you know as, as more big stars you know have to go see therapists and psychiatrists and i think people are shifting a little bit it's a little bit more accepted and it's it's not quite frowned upon as much to to either be a psychiatrist or see a psychiatrist as it was in the past the boundaries the the walls are still there a little bit but they're coming down and and again for me that psychiatry is probably one of the areas that you can be the most creative in and just limitless with what you can do so i i hope more people learn learn that about it Just to wrap up, do you have any final words of wisdom or advice for students who are considering a career like yours? Yes. Don't be afraid to be creative. Be yourself in whatever area of medicine you want to go into. Don't be afraid to inject yourself into your practice. Patients need a human being to be their doctor. They don't need a robot or someone who's disconnected from them. It's just that that human element that you can bring in even to surgery or anesthesia, like anything, bring that human element into your practice, no matter what you're doing, and be aware of opportunities that arise. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for telling us about what you do. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Northern Exposure. To suggest a guest, send us feedback, or learn more, check out our website, northernexposurepodcast.ca. We are both students at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program, and all views expressed are ours alone. Views expressed by guests on our show are personal opinions and should not be considered representative of any hospital, university, or other organization with which they may be affiliated. Music composed by David Rubel and performed by the David Rubel Quintet.